We're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 9. <clears throat> and the Bible says this, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor feminine, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That's a reference to same-sex behavior nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Let's pray right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask, God, that you would undertake now the next few moments, O oh God, of this message, O oh Lord, and speak to the heart of someone today who needs to hear from God desperately, I pray. Lift our spirit to the highest uh, mountain of the Holy Ghost today, we pray, and bring us up close to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Greet some folks as you're being seated today. And uh, today is a bittersweet Sunday for us because this is... Nicole Snow's last service with us as far as as far as I know she's moving back to her home in Oswego her journey in life is taking her back that way who knows if she'll come back again we would love to have her come back again why don't we just take a moment let's let's take a moment and just gather around her and pray for her the blessing of God be upon her I know she looked forward to being back with her family in her home church. But we're going to miss her. I love her dearly, and she's been a great blessing here. Amen. And we're going to really miss her. But let's pray for her. Hallelujah. Jesus, in the name of the Lord, bless Nicole. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless her, Lord, I pray. Touch her, Lord God, as she journeys in life. You have a mission and a plan for her life. We may not understand everything, oh Lord God, but we will by and by. And I pray in the meantime, Lord God, Lord Jesus, is come so close to us like family, Lord God. And I pray that you will bless her, Lord, and use her in the kingdom of God, the world of God. Give her accountability for your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, touch her, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> hallelujah, hallelujah. So I will put a thought on my <clears throat> a title on my thought this morning, just as justified but just as bad. Life is a process. There's only so much planning that will be effective, and then chance and opportunity will have their day. And you will go crazy trying to plan for every contingency and trying to control every outcome that you can think of. It just cannot be done. But that doesn't mean that one should not have good plans and some good structure in place in their life to try to deal with the things that they can handle. In a sense, life is like a sea, and we're cast adrift upon it. Now, we can choose to drift, or row, or paddle, or throw up a sail, or build a motor. But when we're storm-tossed, as we will be, we had better choose to bail or else. We are all like ships that are passing in the night and 
So we sail, we drift, we roll, we motor along. And there are people and events that are far over the horizon at this moment of where we are on the sea. But some, at some point, their ships, the ship of that destiny, will hove into view at some distant point in our future. We do not know anything about it now, but it is going to happen. Now, we cannot do anything about everything, but we can trust in one who can do anything about everything. Inevitably, someone or something will enter into our life that's going to have a negative impact on us. Our life, our joy, our future will be robbed of blessing. We're going to be left with negative energy, as some would call it, and baggage for others. We have to understand that choices have consequences, and that's a rule that it would serve us all well to remember. But sometimes we endure consequences that we did not choose. That child born out of wedlock had no choice in the matter. That crack baby was a victim and didn't choose that. That child victim of a predator had no choice in what was going on. Sometimes there are consequences that take place over which we had no control and no choice. These are the things that people have got to learn to live with. And they've got to learn to deal with it. Things that they do not choose to have happen to them are things that are called grace builders. And what is intended to come out of it is much as... A grain of sand falling into an oyster may be harmful to the creature, but the creature will deal with it in its own way. And it will secrete around it a fluid and a liquid that will harm and will bind together. And it will continue to bind and build. And much as your body might produce a bone spur, a pearl will produce an oyster out of a disadvantage, out of a, uh, a painful thing, out of something that causes its flesh friction and hurt and pain. And out of it will come something beautiful because the pearl finds that really there is no, uh, there's nothing else to do but either live with it and, and change it and modify it or die from it. There's only two choices ahead. What we do with the things that are to our disadvantage, amen, can only really be processed by the power of God's grace and spirit. Through His forgiveness, His grace, and His mercy, He can take everything that rubs us wrong and would hurt us and destroy us and process it out. So that it becomes something beautiful and wonderful to behold. A mystical, magical story that brings beauty to all that is around it. Something to be greatly sought after and desired. Who knows the wounds, the hurts, the afflictions, and the pains of great men and women of God who have served in the ministry. You heard Sister LaFave say that a pastor's wife is the hardest job in the world. I do not doubt that that in part is because she is married to the pastor. She would be better off married to a doctor or a dentist because it doesn't have near the baggage as being married to a pastor has. But the, all of that aside, no, can, no one can tell 
when you see the end product of a ministry, of a faithful life that has served God and the beauty and, and, and the wisdom and all the gifts that can come out of that and the edifying and the positiveness and the grace that comes out of that. But you don't know the cost of the oil that is in that vase, that bottle, that box. You don't know the price that was paid to get there. And I want to tell you, there was some grinding trial. There was some groaning prayer. There was a lot of frustration and a lot of pain. There was a lot of, I'm going to quit if I can, but I won't because I can't because he won't let me. Hallelujah. There's a lot of that that goes into that. But out of that comes something that is great and strong and can bless others. You'll get the picture. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Verse 27, Neither give place to the devil. That's some tough advice. How do you do that? How can you be angry and not sin? They're so close to one another. And there's something about when you lose your temper and you lose your anger that you also lose something else with that. You lose dignity. You lose grace. You let go of words that you cannot bring back and you wish you'd never had. You say things that you don't really mean, but they're hurtful things to the person who's hearing it. We're all guilty of that. I've been guilty of it. Recently. And I've asked for forgiveness, so I'm confessing. <laughs> uh, hallelujah. I'm preaching, to, I'm preaching to the choir right now. All right. So it's some, some tough advice. So how do we do that? Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. There are things that can cause us to give the devil room at our table. To give him room at our table. To put him up there when he shouldn't be there. Uh, he, he, he should not be invited. He doesn't belong there, but yet we've made space for him. We've made room for him. The Bible says not to do that. First Timothy 2 and 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. There are two things that can cause our prayers to fall to the ground. Anger, wrath, but also doubt can do it. These are problems more, it seems, for men than for women because the advice in the scripture is given to men. Lift up holy hands, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without anger, without doubting God. There are times when we're called upon, and that's the God way of looking at it. Times when we're called upon, or times when we're forced, maybe our own view, to endure evil. To suffer the wrong for the right. And it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing that's come to live in our life. That's come to stay in our home. That's come to stay in our heart and our mind. That's built a nest in our emotions. And as much as we try to get rid of it, it's back there the next day. It isn't a good thing. And it isn't always something that we are, are at fault for. It may not be that we are the guilty one. We all have emotions. And we all have rights, self-claimed, self-imposed rights. Some people seem more conscious of their rights than others. We live in a country that was founded on personal freedoms and rights, and now everybody's got rights, and they got so many rights that I'm losing my rights. But we claim these things, and we could be right. We could be right. We get angry. 
<clears throat> we get angry because we were in the right, they were in the wrong. And we have a right to feel as we do. Wounded, angry, hurt, disappointed, frustrated. We have a right to it. You don't understand. I'm not the culprit. I'm the victim. I was hurt. You hurt me. You hurt me. And I will cherish my right to be justified against you all the days of my life because you hurt me and I live with that pain and I'm not going to let it go. You hurt me. We have a right to it. We insist on it. I'm keeping it. It's my wound. It's my hurt. I didn't deserve it. You gave it to me. I'm holding on to it. But though we may be in the right, and though we may be the innocent victim of another person's evil, what we do with it and how we think and feel about it determines whether that evil in life and in this world gets bigger or grows smaller. What we do about it, how we think about it, how we view it, how we retain it, or how we dismiss it. You have a right to it. You did not deserve it. And you own it. It's yours. For as long as you will keep it, you own it. And you can have it for as long as you want to live. But always it will be a grievance, a friction, a rub. Always it will rub you and it will hurt you. It would be better if it had never happened. And the closest you can get to it never having happened is to never remember that it ever did. And there is one that I know who has the power to do that. Only one that I know. And he is the one who has all the rights. He didn't deserve any of it. He suffered on Calvary for all of it. And when we cast our care upon him and throw the burden of our evil to him, he cast it into the sea of God's forgetfulness. And he challenges us to go as far as the east is from the west and see if we can find what he has lost. says then Martha as soon as she had heard that Jesus was coming went to meet him but Mary sat still in the house they had been friends really really close close to Jesus they had been special to Jesus 
And he really enjoyed their company. And these people were personal friends of Jesus, our Savior. There were a lot of people in his life, traveling in and out of his life, and in his entourage. He had followers that regarded him as master and themselves servants. But these three people were his personal friends. Jesus had personal friends on this earth and many acquaintances. But these people were special. He always loved to go to their house and have an evening and a meal together and talk and fellowship. They were as close to him as family can get. Closer even because his own family rejected his claims except for his mother. So, they were special friends of Jesus or so they thought as Mary sat there grieving in the house. You may know the story, you may not, but Lazarus, their brother, the brother of Martha and Mary, had died and he had gotten sick. And word had come to Jesus to come and pray for him. And the healer who had healed so many people could surely have succeeded with Lazarus and healed him. And there was time to accomplish this. But Jesus deliberately held back and restrained himself from going. He did not make the trip. He did not put forth the effort. His own disciples sat there and watched with marvel. They did not understand. They knew Jesus was close to Lazarus and there, there was great personal friendship. Why doesn't he go and help Lazarus? And they couldn't figure it out. And there are things that God does in our lives that we do not understand and cannot figure out. And only time will show that he had a plan. He had a reason that was bigger than us and our moment and our grief and our hurt and our pain and our difficulty and our sorrow. And that reason was to glorify him through us because he trusts us. He trusts us to handle it. Legitimate grief turned to pouting. Mary who thought she loved Jesus, who forsook housework to sit at his feet and be personally taught and get close to him. Mary, who thought she loved Jesus, now found herself dealing with strange and uncomfortable and unusual emotions and thoughts toward him. She was angry. She had a right to be. But she was sinning. In her anger, she sat still in the house. She would not go to see him. He's offended me. I'm offended. And I'm not going to go see him. He'll have to come to me because he's hurt me. Martha, ever the responsible one, does the right thing in the moment. No doubt in her own mind, in her own heart, she was just as full of questions as her sister Mary. Had struggled with the same emotions. They all were mystified and in doubt and wondered about their relationship with Jesus. But ever the responsible one, always something in her driving her to get past her feeling and do the right thing in the moment. Amen. Be glad if you know somebody or can be the kind of person who can put down and put aside your own feeling in the matter and push past it and do the right thing in the moment and fulfill that and go ahead and do that because it's not a negative quality. It's a good quality to have. 
But she, she would deal with her private grief later. She would process that all later. But for right now, she would go out of the house and she would meet Jesus. And glad she was that she did. And even though she met him with gentle reproach, as much as her sister was reproaching him by not going to see him, Martha reproached him and told him, Look, you had time. Why didn't you come? I, I, I know you could have healed him, but Jesus said, he'll be resurrected. He's going to be resurrected. She didn't understand Jesus meant today. She thought it would be way, way, way down the road in time at the great last resurrection of all. She, she thought surely that's what he meant, but she didn't know that he had come to her house today to prove the power of God and make this family legend in their own time and for all eternity to live that family into a new level of personal relationship with God that said Jesus loved him that much that he would use this situation to magnify God and they would never be forgotten from it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In, in his book Emotional Intelligence, author Daniel Goleman shows how the mind can become compartmentalized compartmentalization can occur and explains how people can do the unthinkable. And just uh, let me give you a few quotes from it. We all have two brains. A brain that thinks and a brain that feels. You know about right brain and left brain thinking. A brain that thinks and a brain that feels. Now our life could be at peace and could be functioning well, but turmoil, pain, and Great consequences come to us when one of our brains hijacks the other. The brain that thinks can get out of balance and push emotions and normal feelings aside. It will then ignore every soft and tender thought that the person ever had. The murderer feels like his brain, his mind is superior and he won't get caught. He refuses to think about regrets and the pain that he will cause. He devises ways to lure, entrap, and murder his victims. And society calls him a cold-blooded, premeditated murder with malice aforethought. Serial killers must plan and calculate and orchestrate their deeds all the time, ignoring every emotion that would normally put a brake on it and would stop them. Their brain that thinks hijacks their brain that feels. Then the brain that feels, the brain that feels can become overwrought with painful emotions and take matters into their own hands in a split second and does what it may believe at the moment is an appropriate uh, action. But it is not being controlled and legislated by rational thinking, by reason. It is being driven by emotion. For instance, a loving wife could come home and find her husband in the arms of another woman. And her brain that feels hijacks her brain that thinks. And in a moment, she's not worried about consequences. She has no time to think about the law. All she thinks about is the anger and the hurt that she feels. And she takes the weapon in hand and takes a life. We call that a crime of passion. It's a spur-of-the-moment action. It was not pre-planned. It was not premeditated. And sometimes juries can take a little bit more of a lenient 
understanding in such cases. And justice may be measured out with a grain of mercy here because they understand that this was something that it was a reaction. We go through life. We're drifting on this sea of life. Our boat, our ship, it gets tossed, it gets rocked, and we get robbed by buccaneers. They're not blessers, they're buccaneers. And they come and they steal and they rob and they take. Things happen to us. Uh, things happen to us. Now, how we think about it is what's going to determine what's going to be the outcome of our life. How we think about it. Are we going to approach things from a rational point of view or an emotional point of view? And they, it could be good or it could not be. Either could be good or bad. Either could be good or bad. Temptation and sin, and sin can take us in an emotional moment of time. It can overcome us if we didn't plan it. Amen. But suddenly it's there and now we have a consequence that we've got to deal with. Or it could be something that we deliberately set out to do. We determined it. Like the husband who was unfaithful to his wife. The part of his brain that thinks that he has to ignore and hijack the part of the brain that feels unfaithfulness is, is not a spur-of-the-moment action. The brain that thinks hijacks the brain that feels. The unfaithful husband convinces himself he doesn't love his wife anymore. He says he doesn't love her, and doesn't have time uh, for her, and he lets her know. <clears throat> he's, 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 help, he's, he's getting ready to prepare for what's to come. And he finds illogical fault with her to justify himself. And she's de devastated and angry, and, and rightly so. And the children notices, they notice changes in daddy's behavior. And they sense the tension in the husband and wife. And they become defensive of mother. And they become afraid of the man that they once loved. Think about all the emotional, logical, and spiritual stop signs and roadblocks the unfaithful husband must pass before he arrives at the place that he thinks he wants to go. First of all, permitting thoughts of another woman to have access to the mind. Then letting those thoughts become lustful and pleasurable. And creating a moment then where the two of them can meet and talk. Then making plans to meet again. Making plans to leave his wife and to, uh, divorce his wife. And uh, then ignoring the fact that he has no biblical right to leave his wife. Just ignoring all the truth of that and the evidence of it. Then he starts sending text messages. Then emails. Then making cell phone calls. Then deleting those messages and emails. Then meeting secretly. Then touching her for the first time. Then kissing her for the first time. And then booking a motel room. All of those things. Every event was a point where there was a stop sign. He could have stopped at any point along the way. He could have not done it, but he pushed and he pushed and he pushed through. See how many stop signs he had to ignore, how many roadblocks he had to circumvent, but it's premeditated, it's planned. The brain that thinks is hijacked, the brain that once felt love for his wife and his family. That same thing, that same thing can happen to us in, in every kind of situation, including spiritual situations. Spiritual situations, the brain that plans to leave the church. I've seen it work all kinds of ways. Some people don't just throw up their hands and quit and walk out the door and say, don't ever call me again. They plan to desert. They plan to pull away. They start breaking away, uh, breaking ties and connections with friends in the church. They break those ties and connections. Where once they had robust fellowship, they no longer do because they are planning on leaving you. They're not going to be here. They don't want you to hurt. They don't want to hurt. So they're pulling away. They start pulling away. And they're making plans. And they don't tell anybody their plans. But it's as sure as anything, they're going to be gone. They're going to be gone. 
And there's a lot of chances to stop along the way, but they don't take them. They go right ahead and they pull away. And then they start missing church and start missing church. And all they've got an excuse. Everything's good. They've got an excuse. But they come less frequently. And when they do come, they are not blessed. They're not involved. They're not involved in the service. They're distant. They're distant from God. They're distant from church. They're distant from church activities. They're pulling away. And it's all planning. It's all rational. But it could have started out because of some emotion they had. Pout. Don't come out. Solomon wrote in Proverbs, Can any of us really say my thoughts are pure and my sins are gone? This reveals certain proof that there is a mind-spirit connection that affects mental and spiritual health. There's a mind-spirit connection. What we entertain in our mind will directly impact the spiritual quality of our lives. As a man thinketh in his heart, the Bible says, so is he. Hallelujah. And all of these evil thoughts proceed out of the heart or out of the mind. All of them come from out of there. Hallelujah. Now the Bible says all of these bad things. He names them. And he says, such were some of you. But now you're justified. Now you're washed. Now you're clean by the blood of the Lamb. By the power of God. Hallelujah. Amen. We can go from there to here. By the grace of God in our life. God plans it and He wants it to happen. And there's a beautiful promise from God. There's a way forward out of this mess of our double-minded self. And it's found in Isaiah 65, 16. I'm quoting from the contemporary English version. It says this. I am God. I can be trusted. Your past troubles are gone. I no longer think of them. When you pray for someone to receive a blessing, or when you make a promise, you must do it in my name. I alone am the God who can be trusted. Nobody else can be trusted, but God alone can be trusted. He's telling us that he can be trusted. And he's telling us, look, you can trust me with your past. You can trust me with your failures. You can trust me with your mistakes. You can trust me with all the evil and all the consequences that are in your life. They don't have to continue to weigh on you and bear you down. And they do not have to continue to shape how you think and how you approach spirituality and how you approach other people. Because I want to take you like an oyster with a grain of sand and I want to turn all of the past and all the wrong and all the hurt and all the evil that's been bundled up in you into something that I cover with beauty, with grace and with mercy and that you can now extend out a blessing to others. I can be trusted to forget your past and not remember it, I don't even think about it anymore. I'm not even thinking about it anymore. And when you pray for someone to be blessed, do it in my name, and they will be blessed because I alone can be trusted to do this. Oh, let's give God a hand praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That means that anything is possible to any of us who are willing to say, I was that, but I have been justified. That was me, but I have been clean. God has put it behind me. He really has put it behind me. And now I choose to put it behind me. And you need to put it behind you. 
There's some things, and I close with this, that is important for us to understand. Things that God can't do and things that God can do. Hallelujah. Amen. You can stand together. I'm going to close on this stuff. God cannot lie. God cannot change. God cannot recall our sins after we've asked Him forgiveness. God cannot be the author of confusion. God cannot leave us nor forsake us. God cannot go back on His promises. God cannot revoke His gifts. God cannot be pleased without faith. And God cannot be defeated. God cannot be too big for our problems. God cannot be too small for our problems. God cannot prefer one person over another. God cannot break His covenant. God cannot revoke His calling. God cannot be unjust. God cannot do anything contrary to Scripture. God cannot bless a lie. God cannot love a sin. God cannot give anything to a double-minded person. God cannot be forced into an impossible situation. God cannot ignore the praises of His people. God cannot be our problem. God cannot be overcome with the world. And God cannot be late. God cannot be neutral. God cannot be weak. God cannot bless doubt. And God cannot withhold wisdom from them who ask in faith. Things God can do and He can't do. Let's worship God right now.